people think it's normal that the minority community is run down. I just remember most the stress of coming to work on a daily basis and the emotional energy it took not to lash out. But I go back to that word hope very often. Uh, the letter to the Hebrews assures us that hope does not disappoint. And, and even in these circumstances, I know that, that our hope uh, will not disappoint. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. This episode and the next one are on racism and the USCCB's response. You may have missed it because of its timing, but in November 2018, in the midst of the sexual abuse crisis, the U.S. bishops released a pastoral letter against racism entitled, Open Wide Our Hearts. They established an ad hoc committee in 2017 so that the sin of racism would be given more significant attention. Today's episode will introduce you to three people and their stories, and the next episode will go more into structural racism and ways that the Catholic Church in the U.S. is responding. And Michael Brown was killed. I actually lived not far away from him when I was growing up, so it really just struck home because I recognized myself in him in a lot of ways. There was like a force pulling me to go back to North County. He lived in Ferguson. I, mean, I lived in a place called Normandy when I was younger, and so I just felt like a call to go there, and so I went to the streets when that was happening, and uh, I was not some main, you know, mainline figure there. I was marginal, uh, and I was just kind of there experiencing that. You know, it was very powerful, and I was trained by some groups to do racial justice work there, and then went on to start a house with a group of activists from New York. There was a woman who was Hispanic, a woman from Palestine. It was a multi-ethnic mix of people who were starting this house. It was about starting a cooperative uh, living space for people who wanted to work on racial justice issues. This is Louis Damani Jones. My name is Louis Damani Jones. I am the Archdiocesan intern for the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, Archdiocese of St. Louis. Louis is no stranger to community organizing. My dad, he's a community organizer. He currently lives in Brooklyn, and he works with people who have HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C. So my mom and my dad and my godmother actually started a homeless shelter for people with HIV, AIDS, and who were homeless and formerly incarcerated. And so I always had, like, a love for community organizing, engaging in community work of different kinds. Growing up, Lewis didn't have much of a religious formation. I was not really particularly religious, although I did read a lot about religion, but I wasn't really interested in Catholicism. Kind of just meandered about just as people do when they're not really a part of the church. They kind of just do a lot of things. I made a lot of uh, grave errors. So this is where he was in his life when Michael Brown was killed, and he felt pulled to St. Louis. While he was living in that group house devoted to racial justice, something kind of unusual happened. There actually is when I really started to engage with the Bible. I had started doing it earlier. I felt really drawn to the Bible, and I didn't really know why and I just really it just went full force there I just felt like really compelled to just read the Bible constantly I was constantly reading the Bible and then doing these this social action and we were trying to engage in issues and eventually I just felt like I don't know what's calling me to engage with this but I just have to keep following it Lewis was getting to know the Lord through his word 
And this led him to decide that the racial justice space, as it was at that time, wasn't the place for him. And ended up becoming a part of the Coptic Orthodox community. Coptic Orthodoxy is going to Orthodox communion. Um, they have valid sacraments in the eyes of the Catholic Church, but they're not officially a part of the Catholic Church. They are, again, a part of the Oriental Orthodox Communion. So I was with them for some years, me and my family. And basically, it just was transformative because I started to realize the importance of the sacraments. I started to realize the importance of the church, not just the Bible, but the church and what it means to have a spiritual father and somebody who's walking with me and my family and, like, just really walking me through all these issues I had and kind of like all these things I was dealing with in the world and just really gave me appreciation for, for I guess, the ancientness of the church. Drawn to the sacraments, drawn to the mystery, Lewis was also pretty sure that Catholics were wrong. And so one Ethiopian deacon, he challenged me because I did a Bible study with him all the time. You know, we were talking about Catholicism, and I ended up saying, okay, I'm going to have to read these, like, church councils so I really know how to, like, refute the Catholics. So I have to <laughs> read these church councils. And so I ended up reading, I read through a lot of the first seven ecumenical councils, and then I skimmed through all the way to the Second Vatican Council. And afterwards, I ended up basically saying I have to become Catholic. And I'm being very honest. That was what brought me back into Catholicism, especially reading the Second Vatican Council just blew my mind because these are the answers that I found in the Second Vatican Council was exactly what the Orthodox were really struggling with in terms of how to be in the modern world. And this new perspective also opened a new window into bringing his faith life to bear on the question of racial justice. So I rejoined the Catholic faith and I was really trying to figure out how can I integrate my faith and this passion for justice I've had my entire life. And CCHD kind of just <laughs> came into the existence for me, and I had never heard of CCHD. Literally, not one day in my life had I ever even heard a hint of CCHD. And then I ended up learning about the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, and I found out that its history is the history of trying to heal some of these divides that were still trying to heal. Like, it was literally instituted as a kind of a response from the encyclicals and the writings of St. Pope Paul VI and the Second Vatican Council to really engage in the work of developing people and helping people aiding them in their development. And it's just what has been a powerful experience so far. You're going to hear a bunch about CCHD later in this podcast and more from Lewis. For now, we're going to look at how the bishops in the U.S. have been trying to respond to this cultural moment. And what better way than to talk to the bishop who was elected to lead the initiative? My name is Bishop Shelton Fobb. I serve as Bishop of the Diocese of Homa Thibodeau in Louisiana. It is coastal Louisiana. It is uh, east of New Orleans, west of Lafayette, south uh, of Baton Rouge. Uh, Bayou country, Cajun country, wonderful people um, who take the Catholic faith very, very seriously, and I'm, I'm honored to, uh, to serve as their bishop. Bishop Bob has taken upon himself the call of the USCCB document. The wonderful document, Open Wide Our Hearts, the Pastoral Letter Against Racism, says very clearly that we have to create opportunities to listen to and to hear the painful stories of people's past with regard to racism. So I have been traveling the country going to different dioceses that have hosted a listening session where people come together 
the stories, painful stories that people know with regard to racism in, in the church, things that they have experienced, you know, to, to listen to them. And those listening sessions give us the opportunity to hear those stories as open wide our hearts tells us. And then those stories and that which Christ is calling us to do hopefully then impel us to constructive action to root out racism. So those listening sessions have been very, very cathartic and very, very healing. You know, listening to people's stories is, is painful, and I've heard a lot of pain, but I've also heard a lot of hope. People who really have great hope that if we as a church put forth the effort we can be a part of bringing about racial healing and, and a great respect for, for our diversity. So the listening sessions have, have been the thing that I've been doing the most, taking a lot of time. Bishop Fab does not go to these sessions alone. My name is Danielle Brown, and I am the Associate Director of the Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Danielle arrived at the USCCB in 2018. The first year that I got here really was devoted to two things. First was making sure that people who work regularly in the space of racial justice, particularly in the Catholic Church, were aware and are aware that the bishops are entering the space as well. And so I spent a good bit of time just getting to know people who work in racial justice realms within the church, within different faiths outside of the Catholic community, and really just boning up on um, what the major literary works or the, the major minds were at that point. And I generally knew them, but this you know first year I um, took a deep dive in, into all of those things. Secondly, the committee set about making sure that there was supplementary material to go along with the pastoral letter. We've been collaborating with publishers to produce resource materials with regard to racism. You know, we just had a great book published, Everybody Belongs. It's a children's book about healing the sin of racism. And we're also uh, partnering with Catholic education partners to get this Information with regard to healing racism, you know, in school curricula. We um, are also beginning the dialogue with seminaries and houses of formation and diaconate programs to be certain that the people who are being formed in those programs are able to address and to deal with the sin and the evil of racism. The listening sessions were part three. Getting out into dioceses and talking to different constituencies, for lack of a better terminology, about the pastoral and about racism, particularly within the Catholic Church. Listening sessions have been a large part of that. The bishops decided very shortly after I got to the conference that they wanted to do listening sessions on racism in in various dioceses in the United States. And so it's a really unique experience because it's it's not just that people get to tell their stories in front of 
fellow parishioners, but it is also an opportunity for bishops to spend an entire evening just thinking about this issue, which is for a lot of bishops, maybe the first time that they've been able to spend concerted energy on this topic and concerted energy on this topic with their flock. And so it's a really unique experience for the bishop because they can get up close and personal with these issues. And they realize that some of the vestiges of discrimination that many may have thought are of the past are actually still being experienced and sort of played out in their diocese on a a present-day basis. The Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism comes alongside bishops who ask for their advice and training. It's been, I think, for certain certain dioceses and certain bishops, really transformational um, because they're able to really take stock in real time of where they are and where they could be in the, in the near and distant future. So that has been a huge gift. What are the listening sessions like? You know, in the listening sessions, one of the things that strikes me, I know that, you know, out there when you talk about Racism, there's lots of righteous anger, there's lots of prophetic anger, I don't deny that, but I think what I have encountered at the listening sessions has been people who, who really are hopeful, people of faith who may be a little bit angry, and, and, and I mean that with prophetic anger and, and understandable righteous anger, but the overriding thing has really been a sense of hope that very soon, you know, we will progress beyond that. And not only people wanting us to progress beyond racism, but people who are willing to do what they can to help us to progress beyond racism. Here's an example of a hope-giving story from one of the listening sessions. The one that I remember is the story of an African-American deacon who was making hospital visits and encountered uh, a white gentleman when he entered into the hospital room of this man who was sick in the hospital and, and the initial very negative, very racist reaction that he got. But he continued to go back. As a deacon, I think he remembered who he was as a minister of Jesus Christ relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, which should not and cannot be underestimated in our efforts. And you just remain faithful to the task, you know. By your perseverance, you will save your life and will be able to save the lives of others, too. Gradually, the gentleman was more and more willing to talk to him with each visit. And in the end, he and the man, you know, really became very, very good friends. For me, that is a paradigm for what we are trying to do. It's going to probably be and has been, I'm not denying that, very, very difficult, painful, bumpy. But I think if we, through the power of the Holy Spirit and our faith in Jesus Christ, remain faithful to the task that that same kind of healing does and has and will continue to come about. 
knowing who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, and knowing that we are not in this effort alone, that the Lord is with us, and that those who are even held captive by the sin of racism need our help, need our help in overcoming that evil and that sin in their lives. And to the best of our ability, you know, we we certainly want to provide them with that. And here's something that has become clear to Danielle through the listening sessions around the country. Our school systems, Catholic schools, really need a lot of work in this area. Small children are being really, really affected by teachers who don't know how to either see biases and prejudices played out in front of them. They don't know how to deal with the biases and prejudices laid out in front of them, or they themselves have biases and prejudices that play out in the classroom, and the administration doesn't know how to see, spot, deal with them. And so we hear story after story taking place within Catholic schools. It affects the Catholic Church's ability to properly educate students well, equally, and um, really affects our Christian witness. She heard a story from an African-American mom whose preschool-aged daughter had a medical condition and needed to be allowed to have a snack in the middle of the morning. The mother described the difficulty she had with getting the school to allow her child to have a mid-morning snack. And it was painful to listen to because this mom had to jump through three or four different hoops. Even after a doctor literally wrote a prescription, the school still hassled her about the situation. It's situations where you just can't figure out why this is so hard for this person, where it's just not apparent why there are so many obstacles here when it seems so straightforward. Another thing that comes up? We hear over and over that people don't hear homilies on racism in their churches. It's It seems to be one of the few topics that hardly, if ever, get touched. Uh, that's one of the loudest cries that we hear. For Bishop Bob, one of the effects of racism is being viewed as exceptional. Being a priest and being a bishop, I think sometimes people will view me as an exception. I'm an African-American man, I'm an African-American bishop, and I think many, many times people might say, you know, consciously or unconsciously, well, he's different than the others. Well, that's a judgment on all other uh, African-Americans, on all other black Catholics. I think sometimes, you know, particularly when we may have friends who are ethnically or racially different from us, to look at them as the exception or to not see the fact that they are of a different race from us is to cut off an essential part of who that person is, you know, because our race is a part of who we are. And to not see that is to not see a very important part of that person. And then to see the person's race and say, well, they're different from all the others, 
That too is, is racist because that's a judgment on everybody else except that person. And because of her position, Danielle is usually a listener at diocesan sessions, not a participant. But I asked her to change that for today. One summer I got an internship. Actually, I worked at this place for three summers, and it was a corporate headquarters. And I got racist comments by somebody at that place every single day. Every day. Every day. And I needed the internship, both for experience and financially because I used the money that I earned to pay for my books and whatever else I needed uh, during the school year. I couldn't quit the job and I really needed the experience. I just remember most the stress of coming to work on a daily basis and the emotional energy it took not to lash out and not to want to tell people off because I couldn't. They were my supervisors, and they made enough trouble for me as it was. Um, so it was a it was a daily, a daily burden and a daily cross to carry. If you're out there thinking, why didn't Danielle tell anyone? I did what I could. I, it wasn't as if I had no agency. The funny part about it is my internship was in human resources and employee relations. <laughs> And so, you know, in terms of doing the reporting, there wasn't a ton I could do because some of the perpetrators were actually in the HR department. There's a cliche people say, which is that hard experiences make you stronger. Every experience that you have, I think after a while, when they're hard, it's really difficult to want to say, you know what, that made me stronger. It's... You know, after a while, when you're so tired of somebody punching you in the eye, it makes you stronger, doesn't work anymore. Like, after a while, you've just lost sight in that eye. Um, And I think that repeated attacks that are that sinful and that painful and that emotional, it changes you. There's only one place to take this kind of pain. And you may be able to find a doctor, in our case, that's Jesus. Like, you may be able to find your way in a way that you are receptive to and able to get the healing that you need and and the restoration of that eye. But the trauma of the memory of the fist driving at your eye on a daily basis stays with you as well. That's a healing that takes a lot longer. And it's not like you can just get healed from it once. You have to get healed for every single time you felt that fist. And every single time you looked in the mirror and instead of an eye you saw a bloody pulp. Every single time you saw the effects of that black guy and every single time he had to put makeup over it and every single time he had to act like nothing was wrong and every single time that he had to put on glasses. I've never had a black eye, for the record. (laughs) I've never gotten hit like that, period, ever in my life. However, the effects of racism are exactly the same. 
And you have to try to train yourself not to expect a fist in your eye every time you you encounter somebody who even slightly reminds you of the person who subjected you to that abuse the first time around. That, in a lot of places in the United States, is what people of color who repeatedly face the abuse of racism have to go through. And that is what has happened over time, particularly in the African-American community. And so people sometimes wonder, quote unquote, why black people get so upset when fill in the blank. And it's because much of the energy that would be put towards thriving and flourishing in an environment has been spent instead on doing the self-control and the self... You know, I'm having a hard time finding the word for this particular phenomenon, but much of the energy that should be spent on living out is spent on living in trying to do the work that it takes to not be completely taken out by the fist that drives at your face every t- every time you come into contact with a certain group of people and even if it doesn't happen you know it just sort of the self-soothing work that people of color have to do on a regular basis um, in order to function in society is continually a part of a person of color's life. And that's not how the Lord meant for life to be. To be honest, as an African-American, you kind of become accustomed to comments, you know, that maybe, you know, triggering comments and what people call microaggressions. When I started going to a school that had a predominantly white population, I experienced that a lot. And, you know, a lot of times those people that made those comments didn't even realize what they were saying would stay with me for so long. Just comments about my hair type, my skin color, and they would just say it like jokingly. And really it was very triggering and deeply troubling for me and would always cause me to have insecurity and just in who I am and the value of my own culture and heritage. There's obvious interpersonal racism, and then there's less obvious. Back home, I I had a great parish community, and I I got to know a lot of people, and it wasn't super diverse. You know, maybe 10% of the parish was people people of color, but it was in, in a region of the state where they were really used to people of color being around. I'm African-American for those of you who are listening. And (laughs) this person was a European-American and she had another black girlfriend from another neighboring diocese. And unfortunately, super, super sadly, her black girlfriend died and left behind a family. And less than a year later, she and several other people were trying to get me to start dating this poor widower. And 
she and each one of the other people who, you know, knew the situation and made the suggestion didn't really know me well. Um, And it was one of those situations where I knew that they thought, well, since your skin matches, your souls and your personalities will too. Um, And I had to politely disabuse them of that notion over and over and over again. Danielle knew she had to talk to her friend about this. I sat down with her and I said, let me explain to you why this is so wrong I really, really, really take exception to this because so many people have decided that I I am the one for him based on nothing. They don't know me. They just see our skin color and they want us in a fairy tale world to be the perfect match. And they don't care about what I might want or what I might need in a partner. They just see skin. And in a really gracious and and God-filled moment, this friend of mine said, you know what, I am so sorry. She said, I've actually had a conversation with the Lord about this recently, and he convicted me about this in my life. And she said, honestly, she was the first black sister in the Lord that I've ever had. And that is all I was thinking about. And I'm so sorry. And it was, it was healing for me to hear that. And so, I mean, that's a takeaway as well, that no matter who you are, you know, apologizing for whatever harm that you have done directly can go a long way. Some of my friends had told me something, and I wanted to check it with Danielle. That when you walk into a room... A party or a conference, just automatically, you know. Person count. Yeah. You totally do a person count. So what am I talking about? Yeah, when you walk into any given room, party, function, um, it's not anything you do on purpose. But yeah, like I know how many other people of color are in a room as soon as I walk in, because it's part of, for me, that, am I safe here, analysis. And it's part of that, okay, there's nobody else here that looks like me, which means they may not be used to people who look like me being here. So you might not want to answer this. I didn't put it on the thing. Sure. um, How about, do you think that dating is harder for, like, a black Catholic I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah. I mean, because depending on where you are, like the pool can just be a lot smaller. My my white girlfriends tell me that dating is hard for everybody. They say that black Catholic girls don't have the corner market on dating difficulties, and I just have to take their word for that. But when I show up at a Catholic party, um, I would beg to differ on a lot of occasions because just the level of comfort that people have walking up to people who look different than they do when they don't know them is is just a lot higher. And on that note, I'm ending today's episode. Be sure to tune in to the second part next week to think more about structural racism and what we can do about it. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project 
by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, except for the theme music, which is composed and produced by Michael Taylor. And then the new music is from First Com.